Hi folks, welcome to episode 18 of the World Water Nation podcast. Coming up in this episode, we have our third and final instalment of talking with Mike Peters, Battlefield Guide, about the Glider Pilot Regiment in Sicily in the summer of 1943. What role did commando units play in Sicily, as they were employed on numerous occasions during this campaign? It's an interesting point because, um, you know, what we term today as, as special forces were busily trying to reinvent themselves and, and, and avoid being sucked into more conventional uh, roles. You know, if we talk about commandos in the classic sense, Royal Marine or Army in, on the British side of the fence, then, you know, the days of raiding in the desert where they had a lot more room for manoeuvre, long-range desert groups, special air service, people like that, you know, hit and run sort of stuff. There wasn't scope for that in, in, in Sicily and all was their time. So you see people like Paddy Main, you know, leading assaults on, on coastal batteries with uh, Special Raiding Squadron. Uh, we see three commando coming ashore to seize the Malati Bridge so in the classic amphibious role as they'd done earlier in the war in, in, uh, in, in Norway and places like that. So um, they, were imp- they were important and they were, I don't think, in my opinion, they were used as widely as they could have been. You know, US Rangers on the other flank alongside 82nd Airborne being used in as battalions in, in company groups etc so they are flank protection uh, and more close to the role that they're going to play, play in normandy you know almost a year later so um it's a big it's a big sea change for them um and and people are wondering how effective they might be you know and with with hindsight you could say a lot more use given the amphibious maneuver capacity that the allies had sat offshore that, that perhaps more use could have or more more bold use may have been made of them uh, but you know again we tend to forget that this is new territory although we've done amphibious landings on torch which you know which didn't go brilliantly well you know for, um you know and the rehearsal for sicily certainly didn't go well um that uh, it's, it's a huge learning curve so actually overall they probably got away with it and and learned a hell of a lot of lessons on Husky uh, before going on to uh, to Normandy. Despite the initial rapid advances inland, uh, things begin to stall for Monty's 8th Army around the Catania Plain at the base of Mount Etna. Why was this? And to borrow Monty's phrase, I'm guessing this is really when the dogfight began. Yeah, well, that's a, a, a good quote from Montgomery because, you know, his intelligence and uh, uh, and his own personal belief was that it, it was going to be from the start, from the outset, a really fiercely contested battle Sicily. And the initial landings went extremely well. The collapse of the coastal divisions, etc. wasn't what 8th Army certainly expected. They, they thought the Italians would fight tooth and nail for every inch of their own soil. But of course, you know, the, the, the majority of the, the better Italian troops had been taken prisoner in North Africa or, you know, had been deployed to the Eastern Front. We, we tend to forget the, the Italians, you know, sent a number of divisions off to fight on the, against the Russians alongside the Germans uh, on Barbarossa. So by the time we get to Sicily, these are not the best uh, Italian troops, although some of them fight extremely well, particularly uh, Italian artillery. Um, so when they, when Ponte Primasoli, which we, which one parachute brigade tries to take, isn't taken, and that, and that stalls, that's a bottleneck. So that 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 dash along the coast that through the Catania Plain to the right or east of, of Mount Etna doesn't happen. Um, 
Montgomery is then forced to think, right, I need to be more manoeuvrist. I need to go around to the left and around the outside of Mount Etna into that American sector, push the Americans out and get around there. But also at this stage, um, the, the Germans are really coming into play. 15 Panzer Division, Hermann Göring Division and the reinforcements that are coming over and the likes of Valentin Hu coming over to take command. The, the resistance starts to stiffen and the Germans are really now uh, ignoring the Italian training command and, and doing what they do best, forming ad hoc battle groups, uh, establishing defensive lines. And if you look at Sicily and, and imagine that as a very rough triangular shaped island, they're withdrawing to that top right-hand corner. And as they go, their logistic lines are shortening and their frontage is narrowing. So it, it you know, and the terrain is very much in their favour. So uh, Montgomery knows it's now going to be difficult. He hasn't made his initial dash. He hasn't broken through and got to Messina to cut them off. It's now um, he knows what to expect from the Germans from his desert experience and from you know his previous experience in uh, France in 1940. So he knows it's going to be a tough fight. Talking about logistics, which you just mentioned, and obviously the Germans increasing their strength on the islands and resistance increasing, given the um, Allies' dominance of the seas with the naval force they've got present, how are the Germans actually getting these supplies and men in other than just using aircraft? Well, yeah, aircraft, obviously, to, to, to a point, they've still got Catania and Palermo airfields, etc. So they, they do try to do some air resupply. And a lot of those, are not, not very well documented, are shot down and intercepted and, uh, by, by the Royal Air Force and U.S. Air Force. Um, uh, some of it's coming across the Messina Strait, which is only, you know, less than two miles wide. So under cover of darkness, they're ferrying stuff in, taking casualties out. So they can, they can uh, get people across. And one of the big questions about the Sicily campaign is why didn't the Royal Navy do more? Why didn't the Royal Air Force bomb more? Well, you know, the flak concentration around those straits was as intense, if not more intense, than on the Ruhr Valley. Uh, so, the you know, bombing by night was pretty much the option that the, the Royal Air Force took, which is not obviously not as accurate. And the Royal Navy, you know, still thinking about the last time they ventured into straits, the Dardanelles in 1915, and the number of coastal batteries, searchlights and, and torpedo batteries that were along that coastline really didn't want to go in there with the added threat of mines and who knows what submarines around the peripheral edges of, of those straits. So the Navy were not keen on interdicting. So the, the, the axis were you know, fairly free to, to move stuff a, a across and um, we're doing it in daylight as well because it's such a short dash. This is not a Dunkirk job, you know, it, it's such a short dash across. And that the uh, the air force had gone for night bombing. They were they were doing that with impunity. Some of the barges they were using were fitted out with anti-aircraft guns as well. So um, and there was a, but with it being so now they could get anti-aircraft fire from the land as well. So it was a bit of a valley of death for aircraft and, and for ships. So that explains, despite Alexander's wishes that they interdict, why they didn't. The terrain on Sicily is obviously very mountainous and hilly in parts, with villages frequently being located atop these heights. Presumably this lent itself well to the Italian and German defenders, and I'm guessing because of this, that the use of armour on Sicily to outflank these enemy was severely hampered in these areas. What sort of tactics were employed by the Allies to overcome this? Well, you're quite right. And the, the, the terrain is mountainous, and historically, for centuries before, the Sicilians had lived in mountaintop villages to avoid uh, being attacked by bandits, etc. And they were, they were very difficult. And if you sort of think of some of the classic scenes of films like Lord of the Rings, we see these hilltop 
beacons being lit. If you if you go to Sicily and you sit on some of these mountaintops, you can see the next village and the one after that and the one after that. You can you can almost pick out the advance of the Allies and you can see each village and town in in in, in turn, and they're they're fearsome. To, to behold, you think, oh, oh, my, oh my God, how did they get up to the top of those hills and how did they fight their way up there? And it, the answer is by use of some unorthodox tactics, uh, by being bold, uh, use of light infantry, uh, infiltration coordinated with artillery fire, and later on in the campaign as things improve, fighter ground attack. Um, so they, they do that. And one of the classic examples is, uh, is Azoro, where the Canadians do a Quebec-style assault, climbing up the cliff face under cover of darkness to surprise the Germans in the morning. You know, and it's it really is. You just you can't comprehend it unless you go and see it for yourself. As to the use of armour, yeah, this is this is a, a, a an interesting thing that the the Allies have got to get over. They're not used to doing that from their previous experience in North Africa of taking armour into. Uh, close confined villages uh, even in the valleys their mind just on the hilltops uh, it's very difficult to do so the cooperation becomes very very important was the type of fighting that took place on sicily a bit of a learning curve for the allies given that they become accustomed to fighting on the wide open expanses of the north african desert yes very much so um if you think about a North African campaign, the classic battles like uh, Alamein, which most people know about, and all the other ones that were preceded that, you know, you had these great images and film that we all see of columns of armour sweeping across the desert, you know, almost cavalry-like, churning up dust, dust etc., uh, with infantry way behind or in separate formations, coming by truck and then dismounting and, and going into battle, or even fighting separately. That is not an option here. You cannot let armour... Uh, go into these, these small villages because the Germans will take them out with anti-tank weapons. They need infantry protection. And the Germans are using the, the, the tanks they've got quite well within that environment as well. So you need to take your tanks in there to take on those or have anti-tank weapons. So there's certainly a lot to learn. And those divisions that came out of North Africa uh, came with the preconceived ideas of years of fighting in the desert. So no vast dynamic sweeping manoeuvres can be can be done. The roads and the terrain just simply will not allow that. And the other big complication which they face for the first time really um, is the civilian population. In North Africa, a lot of these battles are, are fought in sterile desert battle space, occasionally going through villages and, and very small towns, but often bypassing them or, or withdraw, people withdrawing and leaving them to be occupied. Here in Sicily, that's not going to happen. So you've got refugees, you've got civilian casualties. So it's a very different environment. We're, we're almost into mainland Europe. Uh, and so it's, it's totally different. And there are lots of very tough lessons to be learned. Was this more of an attritional battle than the Allies had expected? Um, that's, a, that's, that's a difficult one. Because Montgomery expected it to be difficult. He certainly thought that. And, and Patton wasn't, was, was equally concerned that there would be some fierce resistance at some point. Um, so when it bogs down on the Catania plane and it does become attritional, um, it, I would say the simple answer to your question is yes, because, you know, the air support that they had in the North Africa desert is not there. We haven't secured the airfields. Um, there are a lot of transport uh, transport vehicles lost at sea, certainly for the British and Canadians. That, that slows them down. So the whole thing slows down. And as that slows down, the German lines uh, solidify and uh, the Germans are, are deliberately fighting an attritional battle. They're, they're doing a fighting withdrawal. They know they're going to have to give up the island ultimately. 
But Kesslering, who's the German uh, commander, has told his troops to, to fight and deny uh, and yield inch by inch. And they, they do that. Uh, and they do it very well with the Karlschmjäger reinforcements. And units like the Hermann Göring Division, who start the campaign quite in, in a quite inexperienced way, they accrue experience very quickly, learn very quickly and adapt. And the, the German reinforcements coming in, Valentin Hoop, and the terrain, yes, it becomes much more attritional than had been anticipated. How was this stiff German rearguard and defensive line finally broken by the Allies? And did the mighty 78th Battle Axe Division have a crucial role to play in this? They certainly did. And, and, and I'm glad you've highlighted 78th Battle Axe Division because they, they were part of the 1st Army in North Africa. They were not 8th Army and uh, were certainly kept out of the battle at the start. Montgomery had his favourites. We all know he liked 51st Highland Division and 50th, his, his Desert Rats. And uh, 78th were at sea during the landings. They were the floating reserve. And as the um, advance starts to stagnate on Catania Plain, Montgomery does this left hook manoeuvre around the Catania. He needs more fighting power, he needs more troops and tanks, etc. And the 78th Division is brought ashore to assist in that. And another one is the 231 Malta Brigade as well, who, who play a role in this left hook along with, alongside, of course, the Canadians. And uh, their, their advance is this series of hilltop towns. I mentioned Azoro, which is taken by the Hasty Peas, a, a Canadian militia battalion. With a, with a great dash and uh, some real ingenuity. Uh, and then the Canadians push through Ajira, another great hilltop fortified village, and then into Regalbuto, which is a classic dogfight, street fighting, house to house. But towering above all that is, is, is the town of Centurope, or Cherry Ripe, as the, as the Brits and Canadians nickname it. And that has to be taken. And that is the, what they don't realise is that's the linchpin of the German defensive, the main German defensive line. And when it's taken at some cost by uh, a full divisional attack by 78 Division, the Germans then realise the game is up and they really have got to fall back rapidly onto Messina. And uh, it's staggering when you go and see the size of this town, how steep the hill is, how high the altitude, and so much so that when Mon Montgomery saw it for the first time, he got out of his staff car, shook his head and, and said one word, he said, impossible. He could not believe that the, tr the British troops, uh, including 38 Irish Brigade, had taken Cherry Ripe and uh, given the, the scale of the, op of the objective and how complex that fight must have been. So, it, it, yes, they do play a key role. And the other thing about 78 Division is they've been trained in North Africa to fight in Tunisia, etc. And they had uh, a lot of expertise in the use of artillery in, in mountainous terrain. And that definitely came into play in Sicily. That, that was one of their strengths. What were conditions like on the island for those that had to fight there during this campaign? So uh, if you were uh, thinking of travelling to Sicily pre-war in the 1930s, you, you would have picked up the Bidecker Guide uh, to travellers. And uh, that would have told you to avoid the island of Sicily at all costs, particularly in the summer and definitely during the months of July and August. And that was primarily due to extreme heat and a huge malaria threat. It was uh, definitely a no-go area in the summer. And the roads very poor, very dusty. And it also mentions, uh, as well as mosquitoes, just thousands and thousands of flies. It's not a very nice place to visit. So what are we doing? We're, we're fighting there in the summer uh, in, uh, in very hot conditions. And in fact, in the Soldier's Guide to Sicily, which every soldier was given, it, uh, it basically says you're going to be fighting in the equivalent to a, a summer heat wave in England almost every day. So water is going to be a, a real concern every single day. Uh, heat, dust, 
And, you know, if you have waded ashore uh, through the beaches in your in your leather boots, which are stitched together, by the time you get into the second or, second or third week, maybe even sooner, depending on what terrain you've gone over, your boots are starting to fall apart because the salt in the seawater has, has rotted your, the lace the stitching in your boots. And certainly, uh, in the account of that, that climb I mentioned, to take uh, Azoro, uh, and a couple of Canadian soldiers are witnessed climbing the slope in their bare feet because their boots have given way totally and they have to throw them away. Uh, so, And that's because of sharp rocks and this poor stitching, etc. So conditions are pretty horrible. That's magnified for the Brits and the Canadians by a lot of um, some of their transport at sea, and a decision made by 8th Army staff officers not to bring mules over, mule train over, which the um, Americans didn't do. They, they brought their mule companies over with them, so they had a mule train. So when you got into that mountainous terrain and you needed to carry water, medical supplies, ammunition, all those vital things, the only way on the British and Canadian flank you could do that was uh, either to requisition or steal transport. And that's why you see those pictures of people with children's prams and trolleys pulling stuff along, etc., uh, or carry it on the Mark I infantryman's back. Whereas the Americans have twice as many vehicles on the other flank uh, to carry their, their heavy loads. So it's a real problem, and the weather conditions are pretty pretty abysmal, to be honest. What role did the Mafia play in all of this, and in assisting the Allied cause on Sicily? Is there's plenty of rumours that some sort of deal was struck between the Americans and the head of the Mafia there, and did this play a crucial part in Patton's advance? I think uh, this is uh, overrated. Um, it, it, it did play a part, and uh, the American intelligence services did, certainly did deals with mafia uh, uh, criminals in the U.S. prison. Uh, some some were released, etc., and brought over. And the, the mafia did play a part in to, for their own interests in in uh, in replacing the. Um, the fascist party officials that were in place. But, you know, because as soon as the Allies land and the advance is always successful, the, the fascist party officials disappear or are chased away by the, the local population. And there's a, there's a, there's a void, a little like similar to the situations that have happened in Iraq and Afghanistan in more, in more recent history. And the mafia is, is there to, to grab that role because on the American side of the island, they've certainly uh, got approval to do this because they've, they've secured supposedly free passage for the americans in a lot of these villages they're going to let them in straight away uh, and to, even when you when you tour the island as i do quite often you know if you get talking to sicilians many of them do say you know you you brought the mafia back it's your fault so i think the, the part they played is overrated and uh, they um, it, it backfires on the on the allies in the long term despite the overwhelming allied air naval and ground uh, supremacy on and around sicily some 117,000 German and Italian defenders still managed to escape across the Straits of Messina to Italy. How did they manage to achieve this remarkable feat? Um, it's often referred to as uh, a mini uh, a mini Dunkirk, and it's called Operation Leergang, and that's the German operation. And there's a parallel Italian operation running at the same time. And although um, you know, in, in other parts of the of, of the world, there is you know, you know, given the order, no one's to retreat, no inch of ground is to be given, fight to the last man, etc. Kesslering has has sown the idea in his mind that a fighting withdrawal in Italy is the right thing to do, and actually. Hitler is paranoid about losing good German troops because the Italians have deserted them and stabbed them in the back, and he's very wary of having his troops isolated. So Kesslering has um, 
has this fighting withdrawal plan going on all the way through. And Valentin Hoop, who's a very good um, uh, German commander, nicknamed De Man, the man, he uh, is driving this. And straight away, they start to extract uh, the wounded supply troops they don't need and anyone they can get away. And a lot of heavy equipment, stores and material. And for the reasons I mentioned earlier about the, the, the flak and the coastal defences, they pretty much get away with that relatively unmolested. And it's interesting to compare it, and it's an unfair comparison, I accept, with, with Dunkirk, because if you're a German soldier and you got to Messina and you were being told to withdraw, you would only get on that transport if you had all of your equipment and your personal weapon. If you didn't, you didn't get off the island or you'd be arrested. Following the final capture of the island, where was next for the Allies? Now, this is where it gets, it gets interesting. If you think back to the first few questions when we talked about uh, the Casablanca conference and the Americans being shunted into doing something and doing Opusky and saying, we'll go that far and we'll see what happens next. This is a decision, one of the initial decision points where the friction comes to bear again, where the uh, British, driven by Churchill primarily, want to push on into, into onto the boot of Italy and drive north into the inverted commas, the soft underbelly of Europe. And the Americans, suspicious of the British motives for doing this and also wanting to go for Germany first and across Northwest Europe, are already saying, no, we need to pull resources away from this. We need to move um, uh, some of the landing ship tanks, the LSTs, away from here and get them ready for, for uh, to refit, ready for Normandy. And also some of the uh, better troops need to be taken out and back to, back to England to prepare as well. So that friction begins. Uh, but next is, is a series of operations, Slapstick, Baytown, uh, where we land on the boot of Italy. Contrary to Napoleon's advice, who says that, uh, always said that Italy is shaped like a boot and should only be entered from the top. We're going to go against the grain of the terrain north and that is what will happen next and we most of our listeners will know about Salerno and Anzio and the drive on Rome and the drive all the attritional battle to go all the way north up to the river Po which goes on right until the end of the war so it will be a tough old slog for the uh, what will become known as the D-Day Dodgers those that don't get taken back to England to fight in Normandy will stay there and slog it out. What happened to Sicily post-liberation, and with Amgot and the Mafia taking hold, was corruption endemic? It, it certainly was. I mean, Sicily becomes a, a jump-off point for the campaign in in mainland Italy. Uh, you know, it, the airfields come into use. I mean, it's, a bomber flying from Sicily is only less than two hours flying time from Rome. Um, you know, there are all kinds of advantages to having that, and, 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 we, and we do exploit that, but the population of of Sicily are starving. There are all kinds of problems with corruption. We've introduced the mafia, and they've taken over a lot of the local officialdom posts and positions. So the corruption is rife in that respect. And no matter what the uh, Amgot and, and the British and American commanders try to do, it's so difficult to unravel that and, and reverse that decision. And of course, their main effort is to fight through Italy and get get going up up north through Italy, or to deploy over to, to uh, England and back to, into Normandy. So Sicily um, suffers, uh, as, as does most of Italy, uh, for the, till the end of the war and beyond. What lessons were learned from Operation Husky by the Allies and applied in the future campaigns in Normandy and Italy? Well, there are numerous lessons for both sides, actually. I mean, I mean 15 Panzer Division, their, their post-operational report is very interesting reading. 
And it, it, one of the main lessons they, they take away is that the, the British and the Canadians are much harder in the attack than the Americans at that time. Um, they also take away a lot of lessons about um, coastal defences, their construction, how to deploy them, and uh, where to keep reserves. And that debate will go on, of course, into into the Normandy campaign. Do you fight forward or fight back? Uh, so they'll learn a lot of lessons there uh, on their side of the fence. But certainly for the, the Allies, it's, it's integrated command is the biggest thing they take away, is that there are too many command structures involved in Okhotsky. Uh, it's coalition warfare. It needs to be fully integrated. And Eisenhower leaves the theatre and goes back to UK and sets up his headquarters and goes full on for uh, integration between British, Canadian and, and uh, American officers and, and mixes everything up. And also closer integration with Navy and Air and make sure that uh, those the mistakes that have happened in Sicily and North Africa aren't repeated. Um, the other thing they look at is... Um, you know, the Mulberry Harbors are being constructed, the logistics are a big issue, they learn the lessons about how many vehicles they need, the lift capacity, how to get them ashore, the value of specialised landing craft, uh, the value of naval gunfire support, you know, and Husky sees the introduction of things like the DUKW, the Duck, for the first time, that's that's used. Uh, the Piet is introduced for the first time during that campaign. There's a bit of revision going on to, certainly on the British side, into their infantry tactics, about how they integrate, you know, with armour and and how they fight. Lots of re- very s- searching reports written about the way they fight and how they were ready to fight the last war in North Africa and weren't quite ready to fight in the European terrain. The management of civilians um, and you know one of the other big lessons is is the need to secure airfields early. That doesn't happen as quickly as it should have in Sicily. So the loiter time for fighters flying from Malta and North Africa is is not good enough. They need to get forward airfields established much earlier. I mentioned earlier um, uh, identification friend or foe, IFF, is an issue and the use of invasion stripes for Normandy, also for the Normandy campaign. Uh, One of the lesser known facts is that 700 members of the Royal Observer Corps are drafted in and placed on the ships for for Normandy to make sure that aircraft recognition is as it should be and that naval units do not open fire on friendly aircraft. Um, So the lessons for... um, uh, airborne operations are, are huge. Certainly, uh, Chatterton goes away after after uh, Ladbrook and totally changes the way that the the glider pilots are integrated with the Royal Air Force and the way they operate uh, and get some doctrine uh, sorted out. Uh, uh, so that right across the board, massive lessons are learned, and you know they they, uh, they take a lot from Sicily and uh, and take it those that are withdrawn and go up from Sicily which is right across the top of the rank structure, if you think about it. Eisenhower, Montgomery, Patton, Bradley, they all go to be involved in Overlord, leaving behind the likes of Alexander and General Mark Clark to carry on the Mediterranean campaign. Well, it's interesting. We were just going to touch on that. How many of those units and men we see fighting in Sicily then went on to fight in Normandy? And were the majority destined for continued service in the Mediterranean, and particularly in Italy? Yeah, I mean, the, the majority were, and there would be, you know, interesting units that turn up later in the Mediterranean campaign, like, you know, the Brazilians enter the war, and there were Brazilian troops fighting under US command. A lot of French North African troops stay in Italy because of their mountainous expert expertise. Um, but, you know, some of the, the uh, what would be perceived to be veteran divisions are taken out of after Sicily and up to England to refit and, and reconstitute ready for overlord. And they include people like the 50th Division, 
51st Highland Division, 7 Armoured, uh, and on the US side, the Big Red 1, 1st first US Infantry Division, uh, 82nd Airborne, and of course, British 1st uh, Airborne Division go back, and, and the glider pilots we mentioned earlier. Um, and of course, the people like the LSTs and their crews are taken back as well um, to go uh, and support Overlord. And that's not always popular. You know, if you are in 51st Highland Division and you've been with it after it's been reformed after the uh, St. Valery debacle, you fought for three years in North Africa. You've done your bit. You've landed in Sicily. You've done another bit. And then you're told, actually, guys, you're now going to be in the leading waves for, for Overlord onto the defended beaches of, of Normandy. And likewise, 1st US Infantry Division, you're not a happy bear. You know, you, you think, I've done my bit. Why am I being thrown into, into the front line again as a spearhead? Uh, and, and that's interesting when you get, take that away and look at um, Overlord and the mixture of divisions, you know, them being uh, integrated with fresh raw troops, 3rd British Division alongside these other British divisions we mentioned, etc., being used on the beaches. And, and commanders have that, that decision to make. Do you commit totally inexperienced troops to an operation like this on their own or do you use your veterans who know what's coming or do you mix the two up which is generally what they do what was the role of the glider pilots once they successfully landed and what sort of personal weapons were issued to them uh, after sicily uh, they uh, they um, the, the pilots themselves when they when they once they'd landed their role their major role was to get the, the troops they were carrying and the load off the glider and uh, into battle at that point, then, the, glide, the, uh, the gliders, if they'd all landed close together, the glider pilots would then rally themselves and would form a, 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 a light roll infantry reserve force. So their task was to, to go to the brigade headquarters, divisional headquarters, provide local security for that, patrols, etc., and they could be employed, in theory, into, uh, into fights uh, as light infantry. At that stage of the war, they're carrying, you know, Lee Enfield's grenades, standard infantry equipment, few Sten guns, uh, and uh, the occasional Bren gun. Uh, after Sicily, they learn they learn a lesson, and they they get um, they realise that they're not going to be resupplied, so they get given the very first Bergens are being used certainly on Market Garden. Uh, they are given issued sniper rifles and more Bren guns, uh, and um, that's the role. Although. Nobody actually wants to use them. You spent all this time and effort training pilots. You don't want to commit them as infantry. But it's an indication of how desperate they are for manpower. When they do go onto mainland Italy, the 1st Battalion Glider Pilot Regiment are used as infantry uh, to land with 1st Airborne in, in Taranto and secure the port of Taranto. And are supposed to be going to fight in the mountains as infantry until finally... That's called off, and they're they're withdrawn back to UK to uh, to reform and reconstitute, ready to go for for Overlord. There was an inf- interesting story you mentioned to me when we were talking before this about Staff Sergeant Jim Woolwork, and you had a conversation with him about Sicily and then Pegasus Bridge. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was very lucky. I I, uh, I ran a battlefield study quite a few years ago, in which I had uh, the three surviving pilots with me on an Army Air Corps battlefield study, and. Um, I I'd done my, started doing research in the Sicily book, and I read all the reports about which where each glider had landed and plotted them, etc. And Jim, who has a great, it was a real character, a proper raconteur, you know, had this reputation for being the pilot that landed his, with his nose through the barbed wire at Pegasus Bridge and got got the oxen books exactly where they wanted to be. And I said, yeah, but Jim, you didn't have such a good time in Sicily. And he said, nobody knew about that. And he, he 
practically landed, I think, the most furthest glider away from the objective in Sicily. Obviously not his fault because of the, the tug pilot. That's where he took him. But um, he did, we did have a little bit of banter about that. <laughs> I recently came across one of the guides issued to the soldiers before the invasion of Sicily. What were the reasons behind issuing these guides and how useful were they to the men? Did they actually use them? They did. I mean, like all of these things, a lot of them are kept as souvenirs, you know, and they're a great little thing to read. And, and for, for historians and for battlefield tourists, they're great because you get a, an idea of the, the political attitudes and cultural attitudes of the day. And there's a great little couple of one-liners in there about um, the Sicilian population uh, being strict, very orthodox Catholic, uh, very jealous about their women folk, and very quick to resort to using the dagger to resolve uh, arguments over women so and lots of useful stuff about the terrain and a great little fold out map so i think if you are you know if you're an american soldier been brought in directly from the states for the operation or you know if you're a brit who's been in north africa all the time and you you think you're going to the land of milk and honey and mainland europe they're very useful and that kind of thing is still issued today one person that james holland's uh recently brought to attention is Captain Headley Verity, who was killed during the campaign. What actually happened to him? Well, you know, Headley Verity, James loves his cricket, doesn't he? And Headley Verity was a, was, a, was a test cricketer, and I went with James, I've been more than once actually, to the, the place where he was killed, and um, he was a, a very good infantry officer, and he he went into leading, leading his troops, in a, and, and you go to the terrain where it is, I mentioned complex terrain, uh, the bit on the island where they are is um, it's quite featureless. Um, and on the 21st of July, um, sort of German defensive fire catches them in, in the open, uh, combined with Nebelworth, you know, the old moaning minis that fired rockets that, um, um, that, that came in at like in concentrated bursts of very large mortar-style mortar rounds. And Verity is wounded there and, and evacuated and then later dies in hospital. Um but if you look at the terrain where he is, to do any form of command and control there in this featureless area, with very poor radio communications, pretty loose orders they've been given, you know, you think, what a waste. And um, he's just a, a great uh, example of some of the guys who were in the military in those days. We often talk about the First World War soldier and we look at look at and pick out, single out individuals. And Headley Verity is a good example of somebody who's a celebrity of his day, who... who, who joins up to do his bit, reads upon his military history, throws himself into his training, and is a good officer. Uh, but, you know, artillery is no respecter of that. It just takes out whoever's there at the time. That's why it's, it's only got one function. So having discussed all that and looked, gone through the operation and the campaign on Sicily, was Operation Husky a success, and what were the casualties and the fallout from all this? If we think back to the Casablanca conference about what were the strategic aims for Husky that were set out and agreed... The first one was to, to uh, knock out the pillar of support, knock Italy out from the axis, and it certainly does that. By the end of the Sicily campaign, Mussolini has been uh, deposed uh, and the king has taken over the country, and ultimately Italy will change sides. Um, it threatens Germany from the south and it detracts uh, from the forces on the eastern front. Germany has to withdraw some troops from the eastern and western front to, to reinforce Italy. Um, it secures the airfields and places Allied bombers in, in range of, of mainland Italy and gives it an, them an operating base. Um, so 
I think, yes, it does achieve its aim. The, the, the main burning contention is obviously how many Germans get away and how long it took because of the Catania plane battle. You know, it takes six weeks, and this is the first time we've gone into, into Europe, mainland Europe, uh, and fought, fought against stiff opposition. It's a success. It could have been done better. It takes six weeks. In terms of casualties to the Allies, uh, 5,532 killed in action. Um, 2,869 missing in action and um, 14,000 plus wounded uh, for the Germans 4,500 killed in action and for the Italians 4,000 killed in action and the interesting statistic which is often overlooked is that 8,000 civilians are also killed so does it achieve its aim? Yes, I think it does uh, it's what happens next is the interesting point. You know, don't forget, as I said at the start, the British still think they're running the war, certainly running the Mediterranean theatre at this stage of the war, uh, and they'll go on into Italy. But ultimately, by the time we get to Anzio, that's a high tide mark for the joint effort, and those troops are being and landing craft are being pulled away all the way through up to that point, and the effort is slowly being moved across and focus switches to England and then into Normandy. But uh, as a compa- campaign, it, it achieves its aims. It is a success, and many, many lessons are learned. We hope you found this episode of interest. Stay tuned, because coming up on the World's Nation podcast, we're talking with Neil Barber about the 6th Airborne Division and their role on D-Day and the Battle for Normandy in the summer of 1944. We're also talking with Frederick Taylor about the raid on Coventry on the 14th of November 1940. 